Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we'll finish this up this morning, the last uh, part from verses 45 to the end. We return here to Jesus' pronouncement of woes in the end of this chapter. Remember, we learned that the word woe is not a pronouncement of condemnation, it's an exclamation of grief. It bemoans a state of intense hardship or distress. It could be translated, how dreadful it is. So what we have here is not Jesus unloading words of harsh condemnation. Here we see the heart of Jesus revealed. Here we see what grieves and distresses the Lord. Last time Jesus made three statements of woe directed to the Pharisees. Today he pronounces three more woes concerning the teachers of the law. So let's pick up with verse 45 down to the end of the chapter. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load down people with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They kill the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law. Because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. <clears throat> you all know the little slogan, friends don't let friends drive drunk which has now been uh, expanded into absurdity. Friends don't let friends drive Fords. Friends don't let friends drink Starbucks. Friends don't let friends vote Republican or Democrat, if you wish. On and on it goes. But the point's always the same. Friends try to keep friends out of trouble. In our text, the legal experts are trying to act like they're Jesus' friends and keep him out of trouble. Jesus has been expressing grief over the ways of the Pharisees. They think Jesus must not realize how harsh this sounds. So the legal experts speak up and say, Teacher, when you say these things, you're insulting us too. Surely just Jesus doesn't mean to be insulting. He certainly wouldn't insult the whole group, for these, after all, are the most reverend Bible scholars. But Jesus doesn't flatter, and Jesus doesn't soften the truth. So Jesus replies to their diplomatic words of caution by saying, Woe to you too! And three times he says it. 
Jesus is grieved by their actions too. So let's consider each of these three concerns. Each one begins with the word woe in our text here. Three woes, three points. Let's think about it one thing at a time. First of all, we learn from the first statement of woe that Jesus hates when God's word is made a burden. Jesus hates when God's word is made a burden. Last time we talked about man-made religion, about fencing the law, about adding extra layers and layers and layers of rules so that sometimes it was hard to find what God's word actually said in the middle of all of that. Well, these are the guys who were doing that. Let me explain who they were. Here they're called experts in the law. In other places they're called lawyers or scribes or teachers of the law. One commentary says, the various copyists, lecturers, teachers, and casuists who debated the many doubtful points constantly arising in the perplexing and elaborate system were all known under the general term of scribes. The lawyer was the scribe who had especially devoted his attention to the unraveling of the difficult and disputed questions which arose in the daily life of the people. So these were the Jewish officials who were considered to be experts in the Old Testament. They interpreted or explained what God's law actually required. They were the men who created these traditions of the elders by which people lived. Now they were not exactly the same as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of people who had a certain view concerning the law and how to live that out. The teachers of the law were scholars who wrote opinions about the law. One book I read explained it this way. It's as if the Pharisees are the fundamentalists. And the teachers of the law are the seminary professors. Now, not all fundamentalists are seminary professors. Most are laymen. And not all seminary professors are fundamentalists. Some are liberal and neo-orthodox and all kinds of things. But some fundamentalists are seminary professors and some seminary professors are fundamentalists. Such was the relationship between the party of the Pharisees and the position of being a teacher of the law. So what are these experts in the law, these scribes, these teachers, what did they do? Well, they interpreted the Old Testament, the Word of God, so that people would know exactly what it meant, what God expected of them. Now, folks, that's a noble task. God has given his church teachers for this very purpose to take God's word and use it for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training that God's people might be matured, equipped to serve him. And God's word sometimes is very difficult to understand. Even the apostle Peter said of the apostle Paul's writings, I quote, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So to be called to explain God's truth, 
to enlighten people so that they understand his word, to come alongside and help God's people to walk in God's ways is a noble calling. Oh, but for these teachers of the law, that calling had degenerated into something ugly. They turned God's good laws, designed to help people walk about in freedom, into burdensome requirements which shackled people's every move. They took God's requirement for simple obedience to his word and turned it into endless legalistic rules which went beyond anything God ever said. They added so much to the simple commandments of God that even the professional scholars could not remember all the unwritten rules. To explain how burdensome it had all become, Philip Ryken makes this analogy. Imagine being held accountable to a study Bible produced by the Internal Revenue Service. And you'll get some idea of what it was like. It was virtually impossible for the ordinary person to know everything the lawyers required, let alone actually do it. And when God's people were confused and burdened and beaten down by it all, these so-called men of God didn't care one bit. It's exactly how Jesus saw it. He says it again in Matthew 23. They tie heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Oh, such an ugly distortion of the ministry would be hard to fathom. Except that we still see the same thing happen in the church sometimes. Endless, pious-sounding requirements subtly added to what God's Word actually says. Power moves by leaders seeking to bolster their image by controlling people. Unwritten rules which overwhelm people trying to be faithful and don't even know what all the rules are. And no sympathy for those who cannot bear up under the weight of all those expectations. Peter saw this beginning to happen in the church already in Acts 15 when the apostles and elders met to decide whether the Gentiles believers had to be circumcised and learn to obey all the rules of Moses. And Peter stood up and said, I quote, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of these disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No! We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Dear people, this morning I tell you, Jesus is categorically different than these leaders. Different than the legal experts of the day. Jesus never oppresses his disciples. On the contrary, we read of him that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And now we see why they were so harassed and helpless and beaten down. Those supposed to care for their souls were beating them up all the time. But Jesus, knowing how people suffer under such burdensome oppression, said, Come to me, you who are weary 
and burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And Jesus, knowing how such rules just fester condemnation and and heap it on people, Jesus says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Jesus hates it when God's word is made a burden. And this morning it grieves him when it happens in the church. And so this morning he still stands with outstretched arms, inviting the burdened and oppressed to come to him and learn of him and walk with him in the holy freedom he he won for us by his death and resurrection. But that's only his first concern. There's a second. In the second woe, we learn that Jesus sees through our honor of the saints of old. Jesus sees through our honor of the saints of old. You know, everyone has heroes of their faith, great men and women who served God faithfully and fearlessly in times past. Oh, we don't build monuments over their tombs as these folks were doing, but we certainly might pay them homage. We might lavish upon their memory words of honor and respect. But did you ever notice it's a lot easier to honor dead people? Because when great people are alive, they keep saying things that trouble you. Easier to honor them after they're dead. Let's see Jesus' problem with the experts of the law. They were spending a lot of time and money erecting great tomb monuments to the prophets of Israel. But Jesus said, you know, even as you are uh, uh, paying public tribute to the prophets, in reality, you're more like your fathers who killed those prophets. So what's wrong with paying homage to a great prophet of God, a great saint of old, especially one who was martyred for his faith? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus said there never was. But when when God raises up a spokesman in the midst of his people, and those people reject and kill that spokesman, two sides are clearly defined. Those who are with the prophet and those who are against the prophet. Centuries later, it's quite easy to build a monument to someone. But Jesus was concerned, what side are you really on? Had you been there, would you have been martyred alongside the prophet? Or would you have been part of the angry crowd picking up stones to stone him to death? Jesus perceived that these experts in the law would have been some of the killers, not the martyrs. Jesus sees through the honor of the prophets. Now, that probably seems a bit arbitrary to us at first. I mean, how would you know that? Well, obviously, Jesus had divine perception of people's hearts. We see that repeatedly throughout the gospel, that he knows what people are thinking, even before they say it. But actually, there's a fairly simple way to determine which side you would be on. 
do you do what the prophets did when they were alive? Do you now listen and obey what the prophets said? If not, you probably wouldn't have back then either had you been alive when the prophets were confronting people and making them uncomfortable about their sin. So when Jesus sees these experts in the law living quite different than the prophets, he perceives that they're erecting a monument to the prophet is a shallow sham. Just by way of example, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate the 4th of July. We're going to shoot off fireworks and and celebrate Independence Day in the United States, where on that day in 1776, our forefathers signed a declaration of independence saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But we all know that in this land today, many people don't believe for one second that there is a creator. And don't believe even if they think there's a God, that God gave us our rights. Rights are given by the government. So what might we be distressed over the empty tribute paid to the Declaration of Independence by people who, in fact, think a lot more like those from whom our forefathers sought independence. That's what Jesus is doing in our text. He sees through the empty homage paid the prophets by those who ignore what the prophets said and live like those the prophets confronted. I challenge you this morning. This is a, a question we have to confront too. Which side are you on? We think of Abraham as a great man of faith, the father of the faithful, a man who heard God's call and left everything to follow him. But do we ever abandon the comfort of home to go do what God said? We think of David, a great hero of the faith who faced Goliath. But do we believe God's promises enough to take on any of God's enemies? We love to quote Isaiah, what a great prophet. But isn't our worship and our piety sometimes just as empty as that which Isaiah condemned? We honor Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, but where's our zeal for the house of God? We claim that Hosea and Malachi are prophets of God. Does that make our marriages any better? Does that make us hate divorce like they did? You see, God sees through our tributes to the saints of old. He raises the question, which side are you on? Do we do and say what the prophets said? Or do we act more like the ones they warned who got offended and killed them? Jesus sees through our honor of the saints of old. He knows which side we are really on. But then in the midst of the second woe, in verses 49 to 51, Jesus goes beyond expressing his grief over their hypocrisy 
and issues a severe word of warning, a, a condemnation. Jesus understands that the rebellious attitude which he perceives in, this, in these leaders is about to bring upon them terrible judgment. For this matter of whether they are for or against the prophets of old is not just an interesting hypothetical question for, for a friendly discussion. This is being played out for real in their time. God, who in his wisdom had revealed himself in the past through the prophets at many times in many ways, now has most perfectly revealed himself by sending his Son. And those who hated the light of the knowledge of God killed the prophets, and eventually they will kill the Son and his apostles. Now Jesus knew that was what was about to take place. He knew... He was headed to Jerusalem to die there. And at the, at the end of the text, down in verses 53 and 54, we see it already beginning to play out. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Those who built monuments to the prophets who were martyred now set themselves against the greatest prophet of all. And so Jesus warns them of the direction in which they're headed. Since to, in Jesus, all the work of all the prophets of all time is embodied in one man. To kill Jesus is to incur the guilt of killing all the prophets of God at once. For Jesus is not just another prophet. He is the prophet like Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. He is David's Lord, spoken of in Psalm 110. He is the eternal word of God become flesh, as John wrote. He is the Son of God in human flesh. So Jesus tells them that upon their rebellious generation, who he knew would kill him. God would visit the guilt of killing all the martyred prophets. That's the significance of the mention of the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah here. Abel was the first martyr for the faith. We read about it in the, in the early chapters of Genesis. Zechariah was the martyr mentioned in the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. Now you probably don't know this, but in the, in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis is the first book. And the last book is not Malachi as it is in our Bible. The last book is Second Chronicles. So when Jesus says from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he's saying all the blood of all the prophets from Genesis to Revelation is how we would say it. In the whole Bible... As just an aside, this shows us, by the way, that the Hebrew Bible Jesus had is the same collection as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we have today. Now, these are harsh words. These are terrible words of judgment. But, folks, the judgment that fell on Israel after the rejection of Jesus was exactly this. As a city and the country was devastated and destroyed in 70 AD. 
Jesus saw that coming and he wept over Jerusalem. He said, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from you. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus grieved over the empty homage they paid the prophets while their hearts were full of murderous rebellion against him, the greatest of the prophets. He knew which side they were really on. And Jesus still sees through our honor of the saints of old, and he knows, knows which side we're on, too. Which brings us to the final woe and our final point. And that is, Jesus forbids anyone to obscure the gospel. Jesus forbids anyone to obscure the gospel. Did you ever lock all your keys in your car at the same time? Suddenly you slam the trunk and you go, oh, no. My keys are in there. And suddenly you're locked out. And all those wonderful security features built into the car, your car, they're now your enemy. You can't just slide something down the window and grab the thing and pull it up. Oh, no, not anymore. And you're frustrated to death. What are you going to do? Ah. But imagine it was your spouse who locked both sets of keys in the car. Now you're not just frustrated with the situation. You are mad as a hornet. What were you thinking? How could you do such a stupid thing? How can that happen? It's probably all you can do to control yourself. That's a tiny taste of the rage that Jesus felt toward these experts in the law. Think of what their role was supposed to be. They were to study God's word in order to make it clearer to people. They were to open the door of knowledge, the door to God's kingdom. So when the Messiah appeared, what were they to be doing? Well, they certainly ought to recognize him for who he is. They knew the scriptures. But then they are the ones who are to build the case to convince the people this is God's Messiah. People wanted to know what to think about Jesus. They were the ones who were to study and explain what the scriptures said so the people would believe. In short, they held the key to knowledge. They held the key to the kingdom. They held the key to entering eternal life. But they lost the key. Worse, they hid the key. They didn't like Jesus because he rocked their world. He dared to confront their sin. They didn't intend for one moment to follow him, and they were not about to let anyone else follow him either. So rather than use their knowledge and influence to promote the Messiah, they locked the door, hindering anyone who wanted to come. 
by their wrong approach to the scriptures, they obscured the news of Messiah's coming. And by their teaching, the people that no one but them could understand the Bible, they slammed the door shut to the kingdom of God. As Richard Baxter wrote, this is the description of a wicked, wicked clergyman. And Jesus was outraged. Woe to you experts in the law. He forbids anyone to obscure the gospel. As you might guess, as I study this, I feel intensely the weight of this rebuke from Jesus. God forbid that I would ever fail to speak to you the truth. I pray that I would never let my preconceived notions hide the truth of God's word. I would guard my own heart lest I fail to walk in his ways and thus lead you astray. But I'm not the only one who needs to hear this. No matter what I do, God has entrusted to you the gospel too. You have his word in your hands. And he holds you accountable too to not obscure that gospel. The influence you wield matters to God. Now, of course, we don't intend to obscure the gospel. How could that ever happen? How could we hide the key to Christ's kingdom? Well, it's actually quite easy by just being nice people and never getting around to telling anyone about Jesus. By being people who are so concerned to shape up people's bad behavior that we fail to tell them that there's grace for their sins. They can be forgiven and made new. Or we can hide the key by becoming a church so organizationally and theologically and procedurally correct that some broken, wounded, hurting person wouldn't last five minutes in here. And when he walked out the door, we would feel rather vindicated for our correctness. Or perhaps most easily, we hide the key by simply getting caught up in our favorite causes, our favorite controversies, our favorite doctrines, our favorite activities, our favorite uh, people, our favorite friendships, and forgetting that more than anything else, people need to know Jesus. Without him, nothing else matters. Jesus holds us accountable to not obscure the gospel. Philip Ryken has been a wonderful help to me in this study. So I want to close with the thought with which he closes his study. This is not my thought, it's his. Between last time and today, we examined six woes pronounced by Jesus. Three against the Pharisees last time. Three against the teachers of the law this morning. Now that's very similar to Isaiah chapter 5, where God pronounces six woes 
against the children of Israel. But where's the seventh woe? Throughout the Bible, important things seem to always come in sevens. Should there be a seventh woe? Well, in Isaiah, actually, there is a seventh woe. Six woes in chapter 5, but then when you read on to chapter 6, there Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and all of his holiness, he realized that in God's eyes he was just as guilty as the people on whom he had just pronounced woe. But rather than be offended by the woes God pronounced on people's sin, Isaiah admitted his own unworthiness and repented. But you see, that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law refused to ever do. They would build a tomb to Isaiah, but they would not repent like Isaiah repented. Instead, they plotted to put Jesus to death. And what about you? Do not reject Jesus as these pious Jewish leaders did. Instead, address the seventh woe to yourself like Isaiah did. Woe is me, Lord. I'm the hypocrite. One who's more concerned about my little rules than about what matters to you. One who craves people's recognition of my spiritual accomplishments. One who is often dead inside and people don't even know it. Woe to me, Lord. I'm the unfaithful servant who's quick to heap burdens on others and not help them bear them. Who honors the saints with my mouth but fails to do what they did. Who even obscures the gospel, hides the key that would open the kingdom for others. Woe is me. Lord, have mercy. Jesus. Save me. Amen. Oh, Father, we go about your business in a rather perfunctory manner. Our hearts are not grieved and broken and angered at the inconsistencies we see especially in ourselves. Quick to condemn others, but we're inclined to do the same thing, Father. So take your word, I pray. And use it in us not to give us ammunition to pronounce woe on someone, but to bring us to repentance and restoration that we might be more like our Savior, who is full of grace, full of grace. In his name we ask. Amen.